it's my expectation that we'll be uh, looking at the tabernacle and our and also uh, the temple because you really can't separate them uh, for the next couple of months. And so I hope you uh, arm yourself with patience and uh, and and the good book and things to write upon and. You have notes. By the way, um, each Wednesday night, uh, the classes are, as you can see, are taped, put on the website, and the notes are also put on the website. So in case you happen to be missing elsewhere, etc., that you can have access to it. Um, so I, I suspect that you, some of you may have gone through studies on the tabernacle uh, and I just want to make one thing perfectly clear uh, if you're here because you are a fan of typology you're going to be sorely disappointed uh, I have to tell you a little story uh, part of what happened with the early church fathers uh, with how they started to interpret scripture they went from a fairly a literal approach to the scripture, to a very allegorical or symbolic approach. So a couple hundred years, I don't remember who it was, but in interpreting the um, Yeshua's parable of the Good Samaritan, they got so mashugi with typology that they even had to figure out, okay, here is a story, uh, here is the, the donkey, and what spiritual symbolism does the donkey play in this particular story? The short version is absolutely none. Uh, and if you're one of these folks that has to take the tabernacle and, and go, okay, the color uh, purple here and, and cow, uh, sea cow skins represents this, uh, you're going to have a difficult time because um, Typology is not what Scripture is about, folks. And yes, there are obviously big symbols that Scripture parks on, but then we get Meshuggi and we try to t tease out all the little symbols uh, of one kind or another, and it really doesn't get us very far. So, um, my expectation, and I don't know if you can see this, uh, the next uh, couple of months is first of all, obviously, to spend time from Exodus uh, and to some extent from Numbers, uh, talking about what the tabernacle looked like. Um, part of that will also have to involve the sacrificial system. Um, and if you are a squeamish person, you're going to have a hard time because it is blood and gore. And I'm one of these sick people that... that uh, I don't know, I enjoy this stuff. What can I tell you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, when I, Joy and I were newly married, uh, I taught a class in biblical backgrounds at, at a place called uh, Calvary Temple. And I went into all this discussion, and people looked at me as if to say, eh, you love Meshuggi. To which the answer is, of course, um, so uh, uh, then, then you really can't talk about the tabernacle without uh, looking at the temple and what 
parallels there are between the two. Obviously, we're not talking apples and giraffes here, but we need to look at the temple. Uh, H-E-B obviously stands for the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you've read and studied the book of Hebrews, you know that the book of Hebrews does not talk about the temple, which is very odd uh, because the temple, in my mind, was standing there. Um, the book of Hebrews only talks about the tabernacle. And then Revelation, I'm sure you've studied Revelation. Uh, there's a lot of references to, uh, to the altar and different aspects of the temple until we come to the end of Revelation in which we're told that there was that there is no more temple. Why? Because God is a temple, exactly. Uh, and the thing that we'll look into in just a moment is that the tabernacle and the temple serve two purposes that seem to be mutually contradictory. Because on one hand you have the presence of God uh, brought to people. On the other hand, you have to have distance between God and people. Why? God's holy because of sin. Uh, so that's where I anticipate that we'll be going um, in the next few weeks. And uh, tonight I wanted to mostly uh, look at a basic overview um, of this discussion. And we'll look into Exodus 25 uh, for part of it. So... Um, A lot of people who are believers have a hard time with this study uh, because of the blood and gore. And you might be interested to know that traditionally Jewish children were taught the book of, not Revelation, but Leviticus first and foremost. Why? Well, it's obviously part of Torah. And the heart. Uh, what people don't understand is that Leviticus and the other books that are related to the construction of the temple or the tabernacle uh, are not about blood and gore, but about worship. Um, I've read somewhere that somewhere around 56 chapters uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers have to do with worship specifically corporate worship, how the nation comes and worships God corporately, but also obviously individual worship. And what I find peculiar, to say the least, is that sometimes folks who are believers uh, have a hard time understanding the fact that Israel had a legitimate, honest-to-goodness, bona fide relationship with God. I mean, I assume that that's not great revelation here. Uh, but I, for one, would have loved to have the kind of relationship that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David had with, with the Lord. So part of that is that God uses different elements depending on the culture. Uh, I don't imagine that if the Lord were, were to appear today, uh, he would say to you, David, I want you to go get a heifer, and I want you to kill the heifer and burn its, its carcass 
uh, on an altar and then take the blood and splash it. Why? Hey, maybe you have a heifer somewhere tied up in the back. It's against the law. You're not a priest. It's against the law. But also, it's those are things that don't speak to us. They're not part of our language. Uh, and so, if you talk about animals, well, you go to Safeway or King Supers or one of those places, and you have the cut of meat, and you take it home, you cook it. Uh, that was polar opposite for people back then, you know, because they grew up with the animals, they slaughtered the animals, they dealt with blood and so on and so forth. So remember that God is very creative and he will do what it takes to get, to get a hold of us, to use our kind of language, which obviously the blood and gore doesn't communicate well to us, but we have to be able to read it in order to understand it so that we can see what God is saying. Roger, you had a question? No. No, I just flipped my screen up. <laughs> All right. I'll try to flip less obvious. <laughs> so, um, what, what, uh, again, this is all still background, um, but what I want to point out is that the tabernacle um, was surrounded, and I'm not doing this to scale by any stretch, was surrounded by the tribes of Israel. What is special about that? And by, by the way, as you can imagine, the Levites and the priests were real close. What was special about the fact that the tabernacle um, was located where it was? It's orderly. It's orderly? Okay. I figure you say something like that. It was right in the center of everybody. It's right in the center. Okay. What does that uh, communicate? It's the most important. God's accessible. It's the most important. And that, by the way, is where God wants to be in our life. It's a very visual... Again, remember that what we get from the study of the tabernacle is that it's a visual explanation of spiritual things. Uh, so yes, absolutely God wants to be in the center of our life. Well, and everybody would see it. Every time they got up, every time they went to bed, every, everybody saw where the tabernacle was. And, and specifically, uh, every time God was ready to move, uh, the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire moved up, and that was a symbol to everybody around the tabernacle to pick up and move. It's very centrally uh, situated in people's lives. And so, um, also by way of background, um, we tend to think of the desert years as absolutely horrid because of all the rebellion and stupidity the people of Israel did in those years, you know, when, um, when, when the nation was uh, thirsty and it came to uh, bitter water, people's attitude was, God, you had nothing better to do than to bring us into the desert to kill us. That, by the way, is murmuring. Why? Remember, we talked about the difference between murmuring and complaining? 
What what is complaining? Is complaining bad? Does God have a problem with you complaining? Huh? Yeah. Yes. How many say yes? How many say no? I'm sorry, you're outvoted here. <laughs> uh, and if you were to go back and read your Bible again, uh, you'll see that the Bible's full of complaining. You know, the men and women of God pull the hair out. Well, in my case, it's not much of an issue. Uh, and they say, God, what it is that you're doing? We're struggling. You don't seem to care, etc., etc. And at the end of the dialogue and the complaining and fetching, they say, okay, God, I get it. You have been there for me in the past. You will come through again. So that's complaining. Murmuring is speaking poorly about God's character and God's motives. It's like, God, uh, you, you really don't love me. You really don't care. You don't know what's going on. You don't have the power to change anything. Aren't there enough graves in Egypt? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's murmuring. So... Um, when when we let me see where I just lost my notes in my brains so uh, oddly enough we see a lot of that yet somehow in God's scheme of things uh, as we see expressed in Jeremiah God considered the desert years uh, Israel's honeymoon with him uh, Jeremiah 2 2, the Lord says, I remember how you walked after me in the desert like a bride walks after her husband. Um, so there are lots of things that don't really co communicate to us, but if we read what the Word of God says, then we get what is meant there. So, um, again, part of background, um, we have inst detailed instructions about what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. Uh, the materials, etc., etc. Et um, based on the pattern that God showed Moses. So I, I want to start off by reading just a couple of verses. And I want to... Uh, you'll be getting some Hebrew tonight. I hope you're, you can handle that. Yes? Yes. Well, I didn't hear very many amens. Uh, How about it depends? No. <laughs> give me a Jewish answer, Michael. Maybe uh, yes, maybe no. <laughs> Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. How hard is the Hebrew? That's... Sir? Okay. Willie, if you find it, sir. Yes. Was, uh, this Willie. This Willie. Oh. Two Willies. Look at How many Willies do we have? Oh, yes. I'm sorry, Willie. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> this Willie. Exodus 25. I, I uh, beg your indulgence, Willie. You put the message out on the Willie Network. Yes. Right, you want me to start the first, uh, first verse? No, just verses 8 and 9. 8 and 9. All right. It reads as follows. Have them make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. You are to make it all precisely according to everything that I show you. The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all furnishings within. Just so you must make it. Now they are to make an ark of acacia wood, 
two and a half cubits in length and one and a half cubits wide and a cubit and a half high. Thank you. Uh, before we get into the cubits, which by the way is, I think most of us know is about a, a foot and a half, uh, the tabernacle is, is really uh, the name not for the entire uh, structure, but for the tent itself. Uh, and I wanted to focus both, uh, both on those. But first of all, uh, the word for dwelling is Mishkan. Okay? Which comes from a Hebrew word, Shachan, which simply means to dwell. Not a very sophisticated word, just this is where God wants to hang out. Um, as I mentioned before, the tabernacle gives us the opposites, opposite type of reality. God wants to dwell with, but there has to be distance. Um, and part of the picture that we get here is that God has been pursuing this ever since uh, the, the Garden of Eden fiasco with Adam and Eve. Uh, in other words, everything from that point on, things were abnormal as far as God was concerned. He did not make mankind in order to, to have this breach between himself and people. So ever since then, God has been working towards the time that we see in Revelation 21 when he would be the temple, sort of taking us back to the Garden of Eden, if you recall that uh, during the cool of the day, Adam and Eve heard the voice of God. Uh, I can't really get my arms around what that was like, but th the point is they, they sensed and they knew and they heard the presence of God in the temple, uh, I mean in the garden. And God is going to pursue, He has been driving towards that. And, and that's where we have, for example, the, uh, the Lord coming and giving the, uh, the Torah on Mount Sinai um, and other places where he appears physically to people because he wants to restore what was broken uh, in the Garden of Eden. So the Mishkan has the idea that somehow, uh, and, and Solomon put it this way in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, God, how is it possible for you, your presence fills the entire universe, how is it possible for you at the same time to come and limit yourself to be in one place, one specific place with me? And folks, if you can explain that to me, um, then you're ready to be beamed up to be with Yeshua. <laughs> My point is that it's a mystery. It's an absolute mystery. Uh, again, very much of a Jewish or Hebraic notion of this is true and that is true and the two of them, you can't really get your arms around how, how they fit. Um, so God fills the universe and you know when you go to the mountains at night, you look out, you see all the stars, you say, wow, Lord, you're amazing. But then when you experience a quiet moment when you hear from God 
and you know that you have just heard from God, you say, Lord, this is amazing. Right? Um, this is what Solomon is saying. This is what the tabernacle was about because God wanted to hang out with people. Now, I tell you, folks, this boggles my mind that believers look and they, the, the only reference they see to the love of God in Scripture is Yeshua coming, die on the cross, rising again from the dead. They don't have absolutely any clue what, what God has done in Israel is such an amazing act of love. Because you knew that, that the Lord who is omniscient knew everything that was going to take place that after he gave these instructions in Exodus uh, 25 to 30 to 31 you have the uh, golden calf episode and I don't know about you if I was in God's shoe shoes I would have said I'm done which was what Moses was struggling with God my point is the Lord comes back after the golden calf episode and he revisits those instructions and he welcomes people to come and bring their gifts uh, you talk about the love of God folks um, it's it's a mystery and that's to me contained in this word mishkan that somehow God wants to dwell with us the other word I wanted to mention Mikdash which of course I hope somebody recognizes where the word comes from minor issues Joanne <laughs> <laughs> thank you Mikdash anybody recognizes Something that you've seen elsewhere, part of this word. Well, close, but no cigar. Uh, mikvah is, is a ritual bath. It really doesn't have anything to do with that. Kadosh. Okay. Um, you can say literally, Mikdash is that which is a holy... Uh, holy place. So, let's talk, since we mentioned the word Kadosh, um, what does the word Kadosh mean? Set apart. Set apart in what sense? Holy. Holy. Well, we're kind of making a circular statement. Set apart for a purpose. Set apart for a purpose. So, don't throw something at me. But, um, this watch is holy. Okay, there's nothing spiritual about it. In what sense is this watch holy? It's set apart for a particular purpose. Set apart for a particular purpose, namely me. Um, Zechariah chapter 14 talks about the fact that at the end times, when God has everything set, the cooking pots will be holy. Why? Because they're set apart for cooking. Well, not just set apart for cooking, not just, you know, generic cooking. 
they're set apart for God. Because everything in, in that time will have nothing tainted, nothing defiled on it. It will all be set apart for God's service. So, Kadosh begins with the, with the basic notion that God is holy. He hates sin. He has nothing to do with evil. Uh, and by the way, the, if, if you've heard the translation for Isaiah 45, 7, where it says that God created evil, that is wrong, W-R-O-N-G, uh, King Jimmy didn't get it on that one. Um, what what the word there is ra? Which simply means something bad, calamity, disaster. Uh, does God create calamity? Roger. Huh? In whose view? No, he does not. It is perverted. Calamity is a perversion. It is? Does God have anything to do with calamity? Yes, he does. It depends on how you're... I guess that's why I'm asking. In whose eyes? You're giving me a Jewish answer here. (laughs) (laughs) So God created good not to be confused or double-minded, but with the free will, calamity can happen. And as calamity can be used to bring you back into but his it world. has to do with the consequences. Okay. Consequences in what sense? In the sense that if you do something that's evil, you, you, there are consequences, no matter what. Yes, honey. What's calamity? Calamity is disaster. Something bad, awful that happens. Yes. In Isaiah 45, 7. Right. I form light and create darkness. I make shalom and create calamity. I and I do all these things. Okay. So yes. So again, have to separate, folks. Um, when God created the world, did He create evil? No. He says, at the, at the end of the cycle of creation. The Lord looked and he saw, and it was all good. It was very good, in fact. Um, one moment. So, God certainly, as a parent, reserves the right to mete out the consequences for his rebellion children. So, Roger, who caused the ten plagues in Egypt? The. Uh Pharaoh saying no to God's wishes. God. However, God. who brought up who brought the plagues about? God. God. God brought about the calamities of the ten plagues in Egypt. God explicitly, you read you read those chapters in Exodus, and explicitly says, I will execute judgment um, on the gods of Egypt, etc. etc. So um it's God who hands over the scroll and it gets opened and it's God who is performing all of the woes and such. You can't say anybody else is doing that. It's Correct. So Correct. 
The wrath of God, folks, and this is not something you like to hear, and you don't often hear, but the wrath of God is poured out on the rebellious. And I don't know about you, um, a strong-willed child has to know that there are consequences, or else guess, guess what happens? They go mishugging. You know? They, they, there are no boundaries, so they just go everywhere. And so God is a father, our father, and when there are rebellious children, you bet your sweet baby, he executes judgment. He pours out his judgment, not because he is evil and wants to destroy people, but because he wants to get their attention. And we tend to be stupid humans. You had to comment. Elohim said to Adam in the garden, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil. So apparently evil existed at the time. Good and evil in the sense that he was able to uh, make a distinction between good, good and bad things. Uh, so to say that God created evil uh, is a real stretch. Okay, because what God created was good stuff. Um, so the, the the point is to come back to Kadosh. God hates evil. God hates evil. Um, and and sin. And so, because God is is holy, He expects that those who belong to Him will also be like Him, love what He loves, hate what what He hates. But it begins with with the notion of being set apart. We belong to God. We belong. We don't belong to anybody else. We belong to God, and because of that then we are expected, God expects us to be like Him, to be Kadosh. And as you, as you read through uh, Leviticus in particular, and you see all the laws and regulations about kosher and about purification, you say, ah, you know, there has to be some sort of health reasons. And the answer, the short version to that is, Yes and no. <laughs> but how healthy can it be like sucking in all that smoke? <laughs> hey, could you I speak actually, to your mother, please? <laughs> well, and I, I grew up with around cows and they're right. gross. I grew up around cows and the whole the whole process is not the healthiest process that you could I'm just saying, when people say it's only for health reasons, it's, it falls short just because of the sacrificial system itself. Yeah, I mean, I mean think, think about the hundreds of animals that were slaughtered and the smell, the stench of all of that. Anyhow, we, we won't park too long there. Uh, the, the short version, folks, is... Um, my mind just kind of... You've got me all distracted. <laughs> Shame on you. Um, it wasn't about health and wellness. Thank you, so. thank you Michael. Always, <laughs> thank you, Michael. Can always always count on Michael to keep us straight. Uh, and and there yes, there are some definitely some things in the Torah that if people keep them, 
bring about a measure of health and uh, and wellness. I mean, that that was one of the things the Lord said to the people of Israel: If you obey my commandments, then I will keep the uh, the sickness of Egypt from you. However, uh, you have to make a real serious stretch to say that all of these commandments have definite health benefits. Some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them are, are basically neutral when it comes to health. So you have to be able to step back and say, okay, what's the big picture here? The big picture is not health. The big picture is this, kadosh, and set apart or separate. Separation. And please remember, we're not talking about ethnic separation. We're talking about spiritual separation. It so happened that the, the Egyptians and the Canaanites were spiritually defiled, and God, wanted, God had to require that Israel would stay away from them in order to stay away from their, from their polluted uh, religious rituals. Um, so... When you look at all these regulations, they all have one thing in common, that is separation. So that an Israelite got up in the morning, they knew the way I dress has to be different than a Canaanite's because I can't wear uh, polyester and cotton. It has to be all cotton. Uh, the food I eat has to be different. I don't eat pork like these guys over here. Uh, the way I um, uh, do my farming has to be different. I don't have wheat and, and barley at the same place. Uh, and, and the way I respond to my neighbors has to be different because I can't rip them off. Minor issue. Um, every part of life was mandated by God. Why? Because they are to be a holy people. And God said in Leviticus 19, verse 2, you shall be a holy people. Why? Because I am a holy God. Now, I know people say, oh, that's in, a, in the, the law of Moses. Well, I have news for you. Peter says exactly the same thing. Second Peter 2. Um, those principles don't change. Why? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The standards that you see in the very beginning carry out throughout throughout Scripture. Um, so, then the next word I wanted to mention is not one you may be familiar with. Tavnit. That's a V. Uh, pattern. Um, and... God says to Moses, here is the pattern that I want you to, to follow. Now, what's the big deal about that? Could Moses not just say, ah, oh, you know, I feel like putting a tent here and putting uh, something here and something over here and something over there. Why could Moses not do that? Willing. Because God is a God of order. God is a God of order, and you know, He's kind of narrow-minded. That's a funny thing about God. He has patterns for us, 
And when we choose not to follow his patterns, guess what happens? We get in trouble because we think we're smarter than God. Um, So, yeah, uh, you know, and, and scholars looked at the tabernacle and the temple, and they say if you compare it with the Phoenicians and the uh, the Egyptians and so on, you, you see they they all had they all had an altar, they all had a temple, and so on and so forth. Yes and no. Uh, there were things that God was very specific. Um, and very demanding about how Israel was to do things. So, for example, the, God, God had uh, the, and we'll talk about the specifics uh, layout of the uh, tabernacle, Lord willing, and we are not in His tabernacle yet, uh, a week from now. Um, but, but the altar... Altar of incense, just a real poor sketch here, so please bear with me. Um, as you know, it, it the, the tabernacle was, was basically like a rectangle, um, and the, there was a thick, a thick veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies but right next to it was the altar of incense and in scripture the altar of incense was essentially the same as being part of the holy of holies because it was so close to the presence of God and also because on Yom Kippur the day of atonement the priest the, the high priest would take a censer and uh, and and w uh, with live coals and then put a pinch of incense on it and that would form like a cloud that would enable him then to come around and minister and do what God called him to do in front of the um, in front of the holy of holies um, and so because of that the incense is spelled out and it also says that anybody who will use that kind of incense of those kind of specifications for his own purposes John Toast. yeah and for us it doesn't make sense because yeah this is like a little bit of perfume here I'm just wanting to understand the diagram the X is where you enter the tabernacle correct yeah, here, here is the, I'm sorry, dear. This is the uh, court, uh, the courtyard, and you had the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, altar, the brazen altar here where animals were put and, and um, offered as burnt offerings and so on. Uh, but yes, uh, only the priest could come and, and serve in a holy place and of course, only the uh, the uh, high, priest. high priest was able to be in the holy of holies, and the Levites did serve, obviously. Um, but the point is, 
the Lord was very specific because he, what he wanted to see. Uh, and that was true, by the way, not only for the tabernacle, but also for the temple. So turn for a moment to First Chronicles 28, verses 11 to 12. Would you read those, please? Then David gave Solomon his son the pattern of the porch, its houses, its storerooms, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement, and the plan of all that he had by the Ruach for the courts of the house of Adonai and all the surrounding rooms for the storehouses of the house of God and for the treasuries of the dedicated things. Thank you. So, people think about David, David's uh, later years. They think that he was basically washed up. You know, he committed the sin with Bathsheba. He killed Uriah. That was it. Uh, God brought all kinds of judgment into his life. What folks don't understand, especially as you read First Chronicles, what you will see is that Solomon could not have built the temple without David raising significant amount of, 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 of gold and all kinds of other material that would be ready, plus uh, he had the plans all laid out. Now, the, the word there, ruach, can mean just his own spirit, but it's pretty, pretty, pretty clear to me that we're not talking just something that David cooked up, but some something that God revealed to him uh, in his spirit by the spirit. Um, so whatever Solomon had for the construction of the temple had come by David. And so my point here is this word tavnit, uh, pattern, um, is something that we see with Moses, something that we see with David. Um, and, of course, something we see with Yeshua, by the way. Uh, because people sometimes think that Yeshua got up in the morning and said, you know, this is a sunny day. Uh, I think I'm going to head to the, uh, to the lake over here and hang out with my buddies. Uh, you know, there, there's, because Scripture doesn't explicitly say that he went from here to here to here to here because he had received explicit instruction for that particular day. What it does say is that I, do, I don't do anything other than what my Father shows me. Which means, same kind of, same kind of notion as you have here, Yeshua modeled for us the fact that, that life for us is not some... Uh, like Brownian movement, you know, you all know what Brownian movement is. Maybe you don't. No. Okay, Brownian movement. Brownian. It's a little bit of 
the notion that uh, atom bump into each other in a way that is totally uh, random, that makes absolutely no sense, that just kind of happen. And for a lot of people, life is like the Brownian movement. You know, people get up and they do things. You know, I remember a friend of mine in grad school. Um, I asked him why he came to this particular grad school. He said, well, it seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Um, and so that's folks in the world do that. We as believers a lot of time do that as well. Think about it. Do you get up in the morning and say, Lord, what is it that you have for me to do today? He said, nah, you're, 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 you know, you're the rabbi, you're supposed to do this. We're all supposed to do that. At every single occupation and assignment that we have, God has specific patterns for us to follow. And yes, we have job description, and yes, we have boss, bosses breathing down our necks sometimes, or we're the bosses and we breathe down other people's necks. Uh, but the, the point is, again, remember what we started out with, and that is that the tabernacle was to be at the center of Israel's camp. What does that suggest to us? That God's presence has to be at the center of our life. And yes, we all have things to do. Yes, we have works. Yes, we have relationships, etc., etc. However, this, you know, we sometimes get the notion of if I put God first and if I seek His pattern, etc., I'm going to be doing nothing all day long but thinking spiritual thoughts. <laughs> right? Huh? <laughs> God knows the way we're wired, doesn't he? Amen. He knows we have work to do, all of us, even Rabbi David and I. Um, the point simply is a basic overall grasp of the fact that God's presence, God's sanctuary has to be the center of our life. And if we understand that, then we will understand the fact that he has a pattern for us in each and every area and, and aspect of life that, that we have. So that we don't say, you know, I think I'm going to do this. Why? It seemed like a good idea. Do we choose then to say, Lord, um, maybe it's not a good idea, but a God idea? And if you are like me and oftentimes feel clueless, please don't tell my wife I said that. Um, <laughs> scripture says that when we ask for wisdom, what does he do? Does he say you're, uh, you're sluggish, you're slow? What's the matter with you? You're stupid? He gives it to you freely, freely, liberally. On one, with one proviso, one condition, which is? Don't be double-minded. Which means what? Don't doubt. Doubting. Okay, what does that look like? Trusting. 
Give it to me in plain English. <laughs> Doing it my way in is what. Huh? Trying to do, trying to decide whether or not I should do what I've been told, doing it this way or doing it my own way. Well, it's that, and it's like on one hand saying, no disrespect intended, Greg, but it's, to use plain English, it's like we say, okay, God, I, I'm asking for wisdom, but I'm not sure you're going to give it to me because you've got, uh, you've got seven billion people to take care of, and this is just, you know, something silly I can figure out, and so on and so forth. Well, maybe, maybe not. Remember, tavnit, the word that I hope you, you learn, one of the Hebrew words, words you learn today. There is a pattern. There's a pattern that God has for us that we can choose to follow or we can choose to disregard. Now, I know we can get ridiculous about that, like, Lord, should I wear this shirt, should I wear that shirt, you know. Um, but you know, I, think, I hope you understand what I'm saying, that, that A, the Lord is overall, and the amazing thing, like the tabernacle tells us, He is both transcendent, Transcendent, meaning he is above everything, but he is also imminent. I should put those words, big theological words here. Um, so he transcends everything. I think I spelled it right. And he is also imminent. That, by the way, is not uh, the imminent coming of Yeshua. It's imminent, which means, and again, that's part of the, the mystery of, of the tabernacle and the temple, that God is so above us, so holy, incredibly holy, that there has to be some, that there is some distance on one hand. On the other hand, He walks with us. Does imminent mean near? Near, yes. Thank you. Yes. Near. So, any questions before we, we finish up this portion tonight? Uh, transcends meaning that he's above all? He's above. Yes, sir. <coughs> so, what I would ask that, that we all do is go through Exodus... Um, 25 to 31, and uh, come up with a schematic for how all the various cubits go. Greg will do that. Greg will do that. He's yes. got us covered, right? Yes. Um, If there are no, no questions, let's uh, finish a couple of minutes early. Kind of get us started. Uh... I have a question. Yes, ma'am. <coughs> it's not terribly deep, but if um, the Mishkan was put in the center as a reminder that God was central, or should be central in our life, 
do you think um, how we set up our uh, congregation meeting should be with like a sanctuary should have like a beam in the middle and people around it and nothing? Uh, a great idea. That that by the way is one of the uh, fairly typical models for for synagogue structure. Bima, bima is a, by the way, Greek word that's coming to Hebrew, uh, referring referring to platform. Okay. Uh, the judgment seat of Messiah is the bima, mm -hmm. where he's okay. Um, again, again, it's the the understanding that that the Lord has to be central in every aspect of our life. Um, and we consciously invite him to rule over those areas. We don't wait until God puts a gun to us and say, you will respond, you will obey, etc. But we welcome him because the, as we learn to do that, then, then our sense of holiness becomes more, uh, more full in us that we don't just say, I will do whatever it is that God makes me to do, but I will do what God tells me because I love the things He loves, I hate the things He hates. And we love Him. Hmm? And we love Him. We love Him. Uh, and we want His, um, His pattern, His tavnit, to be what defines our life. Willie, would you finish for us with a word of prayer? Yes. Well, Father, Lord, we thank you for teaching tonight. Lord, thank you for bringing us together here and for your word to let us get closer to you, Father. We ask you, Father, that as we depart from this place, that your presence be with us and you allow us a night of rest and allow us to reconvene here for Shabbat. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.